And welcome back, welcome back, welcome back to Fire It Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I host the show each week as we take a look behind the curtains in the political machine here in the United States of America. Well, here we are in the month of June. The uh, economy is starting to uh, restart itself. Uh, All 50 states now are at some level of reopening, uh, trying to get people back out uh, in as safe a manner as possible. And so we should kick it off with an update on our uh, Corona COVID-19 numbers. Uh, We have crossed over 2 million reported cases here in the United States uh, with more than 115,000 people who have died from COVID-19 disease. And those numbers actually are escalating slightly. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But the, the states are at various levels, as I said, of reopening. Some states are more open than others, but in just about every state, uh, people are now returning to restaurants and beaches and parks and all of that. Added to, to that is the fact that we have now been in an uh, ongoing series of protests around the country uh, for almost 20 days now. Uh, following the death of George Floyd in uh, Minneapolis. And, you know, that has pushed a lot of people into close proximity. Not everybody is wearing their masks. And, you know, we are starting to see and we're starting to get numbers now that show that uh, coronavirus is actually ticking up in many locations in the country. Uh, And a recent Uh, prediction coming out of the medical and scientific community in looking at projections of the impact of the illness is saying that uh, it is possible by the 1st of September that we will be over 200,000 people who have perished from the disease. Uh, And, you know, goes to show, as we've always been talking about, the need to be uh, safety smart and use our common sense when we're out uh, and getting back out into public. Uh, to make sure that, you know, we are maintaining as best as we can our distancing, we are maintaining and wearing our masks, we are keeping up with our our hand sanitation and and washing our hands frequently. Um, So as we now fully swing into the summertime, uh, we are going to need to be more uh, vigilant than ever to making sure that we are keeping ourselves safe. You know, so that being said, uh, another quick little housekeeping tip uh, I apologize in advance for the higher than normal amount of background noise you may hear. Uh, as I've said, I'm using this time uh, as I, I look for a new daytime job uh, to uh, do some upgrades in the studio here uh, where I record the show. And this week it's on acoustics and I have need to... Uh, redo the acoustics on the window here in my office slash studio so uh, we've got a little bit more background noise creeping in I will try and and work around it and ask for your kind indulgence uh, as you may hear the occasional truck or motorcycle roll through while I'm talking Um, getting back to uh, the month of June in you know, in this month, and as I said, you know, it, it is one where you know maybe June uh, could be an additional Black History Month because uh, we had a couple of significant events that happened uh, in history in June. Uh, the first one that I want to just mention is what happened in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on June first in 1921. So you know, 99 years ago this month. Uh, was the date that an angry mob of uh, whites in Tulsa uh, surrounded and uh, burned to the ground and killed hundreds of black people in what was known as Black Wall Street. Uh, In the uh, early 1900s, right after the uh, ending of slavery, a large number of, of blacks moved into the Tulsa area and started businesses and you know built houses and, and basically built a thriving economic center in Tulsa that really was the envy of, of the uh, American country at the time. Well, 
whether you chalk it up to jealousy or you chalk it up to you know racism um, on the 19th 20th and 21st of June in 1921 uh, a mob uh, attacked the uh, Black Wall Street area uh, also known as um, as Greenwood and you know looted and burned and killed uh, upwards of a couple of hundred people uh, and basically burned Black Wall Street to the ground uh, it was an expression, as I said, of racism, uh, of jealousy, and, you know, fear might be a word as well, um, you know, of the success of this thriving black community. I mean, there were hundreds of businesses in the area that catered primarily to black people. As historical records show, Greenwood was a flourishing community uh, where there was a wide variety of grocery stores and shops, nightclubs, drugstores, churches, funeral homes, restaurants, banks, hotels, uh, everything that uh, served the, the needs of the black community. Um, and you know, this was a huge sense of pride and, and unity for the black community, not just in Tulsa, but a as a beacon for the entire country of the day. Well, you know, as with many uh, events, as we've seen in the past few weeks, uh, a, a triggering event has to happen before, you know, these kinds of violence will occur. Um, and, you know, in, in this case, it was the alleged assault of a uh, white teenage elevator operator in Greenwood by a 19-year-old black man uh, that was never proven to actually have happened, but that event triggered a, a backlash of anger and rage in the white community and led directly to the destruction of Black Wall Street. As I said, you know, in, in parallel with recent events that we've seen here, uh, you know, in the, in the recent weeks, um, the actual incident, uh, there's no clear evidence of actually what happened. Uh, apparently, and from what history is recording, uh, it was an allegation that led to a, a serious response that led to the riot and burning and murder that happened in Greenwood. So, you know, some parallels to, you know, what we've seen in the past, you know, few months here in the U.S. Um, the second item to make mention of revolving around the month of June is the, the holiday known as Juneteenth. Uh, Juneteenth is the oldest nationally celebrated uh, commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. Um, on um, June 19th, in 1865, uh, Union General Gordon, uh, Gordon Granger uh, arrived in Galveston with the news that the president, uh, Abraham Lincoln, had issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which had freed all of the slaves that were uh, you know, enslaved in the uh, Confederate States. Um, that document was initially uh, drafted by Lincoln in 1861 and I'm sorry 1862 and became law on January 1st 1863 and you know a constitutional amendment was then added to it the 13th amendment which you know banned and outlawed uh, the enslavement of any people here in the United States of America and giving freedom to some three and a half to four million uh, African descended people here in this country. Now, it's not without some political reason behind it, and history has looked back. One of the things that uh, Lincoln was concerned about, because although he you know, was not a fan and did not like slavery, he also realized the political necessity of the impact of freeing the uh, three and a half to four million people here uh, who were enslaved in the United States. Uh, slavery in the, the southern states, particularly those that had formed the Confederacy, uh, was immensely popular and you know, clearly was the economic engine that was driving the prosperity of the day. And you know, the, the political necessities of making these people free uh, was not something that Lincoln had taken lightly. 
So to, to say all that is to draw the parallel between you know, what happened then and you know, what we're seeing transpire uh, on a daily basis here in the United States today is the battle between you know, the, the moral right thing to do and the economic needs of the country. Um, you know, as then as now, uh, economy uh, really was the grease on the engine of democracy. And, you know, just like with the, the protests going on over the killing of African Americans here in this country at the hands of the police and the impacts of the coronavirus, uh, you know, the economy has been a huge talking point uh, by the, the Republicans in power uh, to <clears throat> give reason for why things need to continue the way they are going. And therein lies the argument, you know, is, is, is or are people's lives worth more or less than the economic uh, health of the United States of America? Uh, does a healthy economically uh, United States uh, equally support all of the citizens within its borders. Does you know the the economic engine that drives our country really take into account the needs of the many and not just of the few? So the the arguments that we're seeing transpire today, you know, have roots that go all the way back, you know, more than you know a hundred years uh, to the Civil War and all of the events that transpired after the end of the Civil War uh, in 1863 and, you know, led into the, the Reconstruction period and then, you know, the Jim Crow laws and segregation, uh, the Southern strategy, all of the things that we see impacts from today uh, are not new. And I've said this before. You know, these are systemic issues that have been part of the American uh, history and heritage and culture for, you know, well more than a hundred years. So, you know, just some food for thought, um, you know, but Juneteenth is a, a, a true celebration of the information delivered in Galveston, Texas, which is the last location that was notified of the end of the Civil War and the freedom that had been granted to enslaved African people in this country. So just a little bit of history to, to lead us into where we are today. Uh, it, it should be noted that you know, this week, you know, June 19th uh, uh, is the official day of Juneteenth, uh, but this is also a week where the current president of the United States, Donald Trump, is going to be going to Tulsa, Oklahoma to uh, to have a rally and you know deliver one of his patented you know rah rah troop speeches uh, to his base. Now you know there's been a lot of debate on the the significance of this president going to that location at this time of the year, uh, wondering and and discussing on the pros and cons of it. For one thing, you know, this president does not exactly have a stellar track record of things that he has done in support of and, and strengthening of, you know, communities of color, disenfranchised, underrepresented, underrepresented peoples, marginalized people, and, you know, particularly black people in this country. Uh, for him to go to Tulsa, and he originally was planning to be there on Juneteenth, uh, but received an overwhelming amount of pushback on that, not only from the standpoint of the significance of the day, but just that the optics would look extremely bad on his part uh, for going there uh, on this time to, to, on Juneteenth, number one, to Tulsa, where, you know, Black Wall Street, where the Greenwood community was brutally destroyed and its people murdered. Uh, you know, a hundred years ago, uh, that just, you know, was, was a bridge too far for, for many people in, you know, in, in the country and particularly in, you know, his inner circle, you know, it, it was just a very bad idea. 
So he, he's postponed his uh, rally until Saturday, okay, and, you know, to, in his words, not offend, you know, uh, black people, because uh, after all, he's done more for black people than any other president since Lincoln. And, you know, just uh, another in a series of faux pas that this president has made uh, that really kind of points to what some say is his insensitivity to, you know, the, the majority of people in America who, you know, either disagree with him or are not in, in the, the elite in this country, um, that he just doesn't see them or that he doesn't care. So be that as it may, you know, that's what's going on, you know, in, in terms of Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, this week and you know, the history of the month of June in this country. So jumping forward a hundred years, and here we are in the 21st century, uh, in the year 2020. Uh, and, you know, in current events, you know, the, this past week we had a uh, prior, I'm sorry, a primary election in the state of Georgia, which, uh, to be generous, was not exactly a screaming success. Uh, there was a lot of problems with the Georgia election and that has uh, people nationally concerned about what's going to transpire in this coming November's election, given that it is, it is most likely, if, if not certain, that we will still be under the weight of the uh, COVID-19 coronavirus uh, epidemic in this country and, in fact, may be uh, in the middle of a, a second wave of the disease, uh, making itself even more uh, present in, in our country. Uh, but in Georgia, they, they held a primary election, and there was, you know, problems and um, just, just terrible results uh, from the actual process of the election. Um, you know, a lot of the state's new voting machines uh, didn't work either because of mechanical problems or uh, a lack of training or poor training from the people in the polls uh, who were supposed to operate them. Uh, there were a lot of polling place closures. Uh, and again, remember, the, the governor of that state is George Kemp, who, you know, won the election uh, over then-candidate Stacey Abrams in a very controversial decision, uh, including some allegations that he actually used his position as the person in charge of elections in the state to essentially rig the election in his favor uh, and narrowly defeated Stacey Abrams by you know, less than two points, uh, which is, is something that she still contests that you know it it was a stolen election from her standpoint um you know it 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 drew national attention uh as just yet another example of voter suppression tactics that are being applied to keep uh democratic voters away from the polls um, some of the voters were still in line waiting to get in to vote uh, after midnight uh, uh the on, on the day after the election day. Uh, many of them stood in line for as long as seven hours uh, waiting to vote. In addition to that, many people, you know, for, you know, whatever reasons, you know, just got tired or whatever and, you know, abandoned their, their standing in line uh, after so many hours of waiting. In addition, the lines were so long because there had been uh, roadblocks put in place against mail-in voting, and many people that had to go to the polling places had to go because they never got their absentee ballots. So, the, you know, this election drew national attention um, as, you know, what could be seen as a precursor of what we may have in November when the uh, the general election for president, as well as, you know, the rest of the, the uh, elected tickets uh, are drawn. So, you know, there's some things that we need to keep an eye on. Uh, we need to make sure that, you know, we are paying attention to what our individual states are doing 
with regard to how the vote will be handled in November. You know, we need to make sure that if there are initiatives out there to expand mail-in voting uh, to, as, as some states have done already, to eliminate uh, the, the conditions uh, under which you can apply for an absentee ballot and basically make it a no-fault process, uh, we need to make sure that we are communicating with our elected officials at the state and local level that you know, we don't want to see those, those impediments in place. Everybody should have the opportunity to cast their vote in whatever means they can. And, you know, we need to get that vote in. We need to get everybody out to vote, uh, no matter what party you're, you're in, and then let the chips fall where they may. You know, if a candidate, you know, we have a, a, a large voter turnout, a candidate's going to win, a candidate's going to lose. But if there are questions about votes that didn't get counted or votes that were never allowed to happen, that's always going to put an asterisk by that election and always bring it into question. And the, the one thing that is a cornerstone of our democracy here in the United States is the one person, one vote rule that says everybody uh, can vote uh, in the elections and nothing should, should block or impede or hinder that process. Now, those are all marvelous words, you know, all well and good. They said they sound good and everything. The reality of the situation is, you know, as, as we said earlier, over the past um, hundred plus years since the end of the Civil War, uh, through Reconstruction, through Jim Crow, through, you know, all of the, the voter suppression tactics that have been put in place over the years to control and dominate the election process by one party over the other, uh, we have seen that the words don't actually meet the deeds. So, you know, a as we, we are seeing here with the momentum that has been generated in the, the violence against people of color and, and black people in particular, you know, by the police officers, no, let me rephrase that, by some of the police officers in this country, um, you know, and the energy that that has, has generated in terms of topics like defunding the police and, you know, up to and including disbanding policing as it exists now in this country and replacing it with a, a more responsive, more tailored approach to public safety. You know, in their defense, you know, police officers are not psychologists and so forth, and yet we, we give them tasks that really don't fall under the purview of law enforcement. But as I said, we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, getting back to Georgia, you know, the, 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 the complaints about the election that was held or the primary that was held in Georgia um, are our long uh, list of items that showed up, as I mentioned voting machines that didn't work properly or, you know, people who had not been adequately trained on how to work them. Not enough voting machines in some polling locations. Not enough polling places, as some had been cut down, had, had been shut down, <clears throat> excuse me, through actions of the state government. Uh, you know, and again, overlying all of that were fear and concerns about the coronavirus and COVID-19 uh, that, you know, bring all these people together, as we saw in Wisconsin, you know, last month, uh, you know, more than 70 cases of COVID uh, have been tied to the uh, primary election day uh, activities that went on there. Many of the same things occurred, a reduction in the number of polling places drastically, uh, you know, polling machines that either didn't work or, you know, they had problems with uh, the balloting. Uh, voter registration rolls, which, you know, arguably may have been doctored or had other problems where people who uh, believed they were registered to vote and had the credentials that showed they were registered to vote were not allowed to vote and told that they weren't registered. So, you know, there is a, a whole raft of problems that we are going to need to make sure that our elected officials and the people that run elections in our states uh, are aware that we are watching what they do and that we are holding them accountable for a fair and proper election. You know, this isn't a Democratic issue, this isn't a Republican issue, this isn't an independent issue. 
the right of voting in this country is a sacrosanct basis for our democracy and you know as it you know as it says that right shall not be infringed so you know our first homework assignment our first call to action here is going to be let's make sure that we get engaged with the people who run the elections in our state let's make sure we let them know what our wants and our needs are and let's make sure that we are holding them accountable uh, to those and that they are upholding the law when it comes to uh, to voting in this country all right we'll um, take our first break here and uh, when we come back on the other side as I said we're going to talk a little bit about you know some voter suppression issues and we're going to talk about uh, some scary things uh, that that could happen with the election and uh, some bright news uh, a couple of things that you know really uh, should give us hope and give us uh, a sense of you know things could be all right so you're listening to fired up this is Steve We'll be right back. You're here on WJMSRadio.com, and we'll talk to you in just a few right after the break. I was born by the river in a little tent, and oh, just like that river I've been running. Ever since it's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. I don't know what's up there. Beyond the sky, it's been a long, long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Oh, yes, it will. Now I go to the movies and I go downtown, but somebody keeps telling me. change 
the 2020 census. Every 10 years, the census records everyone living in this country. It's written in the Constitution and comes in a questionnaire that counts everyone who lives at your address on April 1st. The data can be used to inform funding for services like fire stations, schools, clinics, and representation that affect your community. How will 2020 census data be used? Where there are more people, there are more needs for public services. That's why the census is used by the government to inform funding decisions each year. But that's not all. It's also used by nonprofits to inform services, by businesses to create jobs, and even by students for school projects. Understanding how the population changes helps us shape communities across the country for the better. How does the 2020 census affect representation? There are 435 seats in the House of Representatives. These get distributed to the 50 states by population, and an accurate census response helps your state get the right amount of seats. States with smaller populations get at least one, while states with larger populations might get more. How do I take the 2020 census? In March 2020, every address in the country will receive an invitation to complete a simple questionnaire. And there are three ways to respond. Number one, do it online. Number two, call by phone. Number three, send it by mail. For those who don't respond, a census taker from your community will follow up and assist you. Is my 2020 census data safe? After sending your census response, your personal information is kept safe. By law, it can't be shared with any other government agency, law enforcement, or landlord. No one. So take your 2020 census with peace of mind. Shape your future. Start here. Visit 2020census.gov. The preceding message was presented in public interest as a public service by your friends here at WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. And we're back. We're back with Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve. I'm your host each week, and we're going to get right back into our discussion on uh, the political system and things that are going on with politics right now in our country. And we're going to move into... Uh, the upcoming election in November. Uh, as I just said at the end of the last segment, as we looked at the primary race in Georgia and the one in Wisconsin that has shown some uh, critical flaws and weaknesses in our election process, that you know we need to be diligent in making sure that our elected officials and those that are in control of running the elections in our states uh, are held accountable to. And, you know, in, in light of that and in addition to that, uh, there was a news article that came out uh, that came across my, my sourcing. And uh, this one uh, was written back in March, uh, and it came uh, out talking about uh, the, the rumors that, you know, President Trump has made statements that, you know, if he does not believe the election was fair, uh, or you know, for for any one of a number of reasons that he has stated, uh, that he would not relinquish uh, power uh, in January as required under the law. So a little bit of background. The uh, elections in this country are mandated uh, for. Let me let me rephrase. The elections for national office in this country for president, vice president, and so forth are outlined and detailed in the Constitution of the United States very clearly, very precisely, and they are you know, codified into law and have been upheld on numerous occasions by the Supreme Court uh, over, the, over the history of our country. Um, you know, and those rights are that you know, once a state grants uh, the right to vote to its citizens, those rights are considered uh, irre irrevocable. So what we have seen, though, is that we now have a president in office 
who has uh, proven that he doesn't adhere to the letter of the law when it comes to uh, things like elections and particularly elections for president. You know, it, you know we, we had the case where the, the evidence was presented that he had in some way or his people had in some ways uh, coordinated or colluded with uh, the Russians to impact the election of 2016. Then we had the Ukraine investigation again where uh, he was using you know, his power and authority uh, to essentially hold uh, a foreign government hostage to uh, do you know, his bidding in, in investigating a political rival uh, in return for you know much needed aid from the United States to Ukraine, uh, you know, and a- as the article goes on to discuss, you know, this president's you know disregard uh, or not taking serious, to put it to put it nicely, uh, for the rule of law, uh, presents some very unique and troubling problems for us as we approach the elections in November. Um, basically, the question is, you know, could Donald Trump steal the 2020 election? You know, and, you know, there have been arguments saying that it's not possible, that, you know, the, the laws are clear uh, and the consequences would be severe. But the truth of the matter is there is a way that the president could uh, be reelected in a a uh, false election, if you want to call it that, and the article lays out the process under which that might happen. Now, again, this is you know theory. We don't know you know for sure or to a certainty that you know this is what is going to happen. However, it doesn't take much imagination to seeing that this could happen you know as as I say at a lot of times on on my show here a lot of the events that we see particularly political events um, we can't look at them just as a single incident we have to look at it in the context of what have we seen that has transpired before during and after you know for example you know when when we look at you know the going back when we look at the the Ukrainian situation and the Russian situation and you know the the elements that were were presented in the 2016 election where then candidate Trump was calling out in public on television for the Russians if they were listening to uh, release you know additional emails from Hillary Clinton's email um, these are you know clear, uh, signals of interference and you know the the latest one of these you know when you you start to string these dots together when you add that with the voter suppression efforts that have been underway in this country for you know again a hundred years and you know have have recently and by recently I mean within the last 50 years have taken on a very monstrous proportion uh, when you start to string all these beads together, you start to see a pattern where you know there is a, mach- a, a, a machination in place to impact dramatically the outcomes of elections here in this country. Well, what this article talks about uh, with regard to the political election and the presidential election that's going to happen uh, at the end of this year uh, boils down simply to this. While every one of us is guaranteed our vote in the election process, it is not our individual votes that select the president and vice president uh, and, uh, of the United States. These two officers are elected by what is called the Electoral College. And in, in short definition, the Electoral College is a construct that was put in place by uh, the, the government uh, early on in our democracy to balance the vote between those states with the highest populations and those states with the lowest populations. Basically it boils down to each state is allocated a number of electors and these electors which are individuals 
uh, private citizens, they cannot hold a public office or elected office, uh, who are, are uh, delegated to the candidates for president based on their outcome in the election. In most states, uh, whichever you know, uh, candidate the state votes for, they get all of the electors. Some states, uh, I believe there are two of them, where it is a proportional ballot. That is, if one candidate gets 60% of the vote and the other candidate gets 40% of the vote and there are 10 electors, the winning candidate would get six, the losing candidate would get four. So this poses the possibility that an election could be uh, staged so that even though you know candidate A might have won the the majority of votes in that state, thereby earning the majority or all of the delegates, through the state-run selection process, those electors could be uh, preconditioned to to support candidate B. So here here's how that might work out. So we we have a state and it is a Republican control state. And I only use Republican in this, this case because they are the party that controls the, the overwhelming majority of states in this country. Republicans have 39 uh, states where they control uh, the governorship and the, the state senator and state representatives, uh, and the Democrats have 19. If you take all the electors from the Republican-controlled states, it totals up to, I believe, 305 electors. So 270 being needed to secure the presidency. Uh, herein you see how, how the math would work. So if we have these, these states where the delegates to the Electoral College are all selected and you know pre determined to vote for the you know, Republican candidate, and again, I use Republicans here because they are the party in power, um, then no matter what the vote outcome is, the electors are going to vote for the Republican, hence the Republican will win. Now, this you know, flies in the face of the intent of the founders that you know, elected officials are elected uh, by choice of the people. Uh, this, you know, has sparked a lot of controversy and discussion about the value and the need for the Electoral College. Uh, and, you know, again, it, it's led to discussions on just going to a popular vote uh, situation, as many countries in the world who have democratically elected governments do, uh, where whoever, you know, gets the most votes wins. And, you know, that is something that is under discussion and has been for many years in this country. Uh, and you know, we may see the case where with this election in November, uh, we see a tipping point where that discussion may take on a lot more weight and a lot more substance. Uh, we will see, stay tuned, more to come as, as that progresses. But anyway, getting back to what I was talking about, so, you know, if the Republicans, you know, uh, uh, set up a strategy where they are going to stack the deck in terms of the electors of these states uh, that are controlled by Republicans, and, you know, these electors will vote for, you know, the Republican candidate, no matter what the outcome of the popular vote is, well, you there have a situation where the election has been stolen from the people and, you know, Donald Trump gets his second term. Now, there's, there's been related discussion about, you know, threats or, or comments made by the president that he might not leave office, you know, in January as required in the Constitution. And, and again, the Constitution specifies this clearly. The election is set for the second Tuesday of November the transition of power between the outgoing president and the incoming president, should a party change occur, happens on the third Monday in January, so sometime around the 21st. 
and you know that is written it's in black and white it's in the constitution it is you know well supported by precedent of law and you know has has survived numerous challenges you know over the 260 something years of the existence of this country and you know that is it now that being said you know there is nothing in the text of the constitution that talks about a process in place uh, that would need to be implemented should a, an, a president who has been defeated in the election refuses to relinquish his power and authority in the country. Uh, you know, there, there is a sort of process that would involve you know, invoking probably a, a version of the 25th Amendment, which is a removal of office uh, amendment, and you know that would you know effectively take the president and vice president out of office, uh, elevating the speaker of the house to become president uh, in in a temporary fashion until a new president could be elected or appointed. Um, you know, and you know there is processes around it, but there's nothing specific that says you know, how to deal with someone who says, no, I'm not going, I'm staying here. So, you know, this it has the potential of being a very big uh, constitutional and governmental crisis uh, should the incumbent president decide that, you know, for example, he does not believe the results of the, uh, the election, that, the, you know, it's fake, it's rigged, whatever, and that he doesn't accept the results. You know, there there is kind of that "what do we do now" moment that we may face uh, come you know November, December, January, uh, when you know this potential transition of power is, is due to occur. So you know there is a way that an election can be quote legitimately close quote stolen, uh, and it lies in the fact that. The electors that are used to to make up the electoral college are solely and exclusively appointed by the state governments, not by any uh, action at the federal level. You know, and and the idea that the founders had was again, federal power uh, is is uh, is for lack of a better term is powerful but there are finite limits that the founders placed on the power of federal elected officials, particularly uh, the president and the vice president and so forth, that are put in place to you know, prevent the, the actions of a, quote, imperial president, a president who believes that he or she is king or queen uh, and is not subject to the will of the people. So, you know, something to think about, something to keep our, our eye on and keep our ear out for if we start to hear the rumblings uh, of, you know, a, a rigged election, you know, uh, illegitimate results, and so on and so forth, you know, we may have this crisis uh, cropping up in our country and we are going to have to find a way to deal with it. So something else just to keep uh, in mind. Now, one, you know, another, another topic that has come up in the last uh, you know, few weeks is this issue of what are called wedge issues. Uh, and that is, these are things that you know, divide the, the country, um, that are you know, polarizing, uh, that in, in some way work to separate the electorate into various camps and a lot of them are on the issues that uh, Americans feel uh, most strongly about. So in, in doing my research on that I came across an article that um, came uh, across my desk and basically they looked at five different national polls uh, from nationally recognized uh, polling sources and you know polled the the American people in varying numbers 
uh, on what were the key issues for them in the upcoming election. What are the key concerns of the American public uh, in terms of the issues of the day that they, that they most want to see addressed? Now, uh, we did a show on polls, and we talked about how you need to uh, do a little digging behind the curtain on them, look at how many people they actually interviewed, because remember, they're projecting a national uh, opinion based on as few as 500 people. Now, so, you know, taking that grain of salt into account, so before I give you, you know, the, the hits uh, from these polls, let me tell you uh, who the sources were so that you can check into it. And um, they were, and again, there were five sources that were cited in the article. Uh, Climate Nexus, in partnership with Yale and George Mason University, was one source. Harvard University Center for American Political Studies and the Harris Poll uh, was another. Uh, Gallup uh, was the third. Um, Hill Harris, another nationally uh, known and, and respected polling uh, organization. And the Pew Research Center's American Trends Panel. As I said, all of these are you know, nationally uh, recognized polling uh, companies or agencies uh, or partnerships. Many of them was a partnership between a, a college or university and a polling company. Um, and a lot of the results that came out uh, had, you know, the, the same uh, things. Um, so let, let's go through and look at, and, and really what I'll do is I'll kind of give you the top five because they're pretty much consistent across all of the polls. So the, the top five issues that these pollsters found uh, were the issues of concern for the American people uh, were as follows. Across all of them, um, health care or health care related issues were the number one polling uh, result, and they ranged from, you know, 66% of all voters down to a low of about 43%. You know, the next few, uh, these, these three were kind of interchangeable between two, three, and four. Um, immigration, uh, terrorism slash national security, and the economy and jobs. Uh, economy and jobs actually showed up more as the number two issue behind health care than, you know, national security and immigration. But those three kind of were uh, almost in a tie for um, the, the top three. And, you know, environment and climate change uh, kind of rounded out the top five, uh, um, tied a little bit with uh, national debt, cost, uh, and infrastructure, and so forth. Education also appeared high in the list in most polls. And, you know, the others were kind of the, the perennial ones. Uh, there were a few that had race relations showing up high up in the list, kind of in the top 10. Criminal justice. So, you know, as you look at these, you, you kind of see the impact of today's news uh, and that the American people, you know, in, in one way are listening and are reacting to what they're seeing and hearing, you know, every day coming out of their news sources. Uh, obviously, with the, the pandemic going on, health care and health-related is, is, is going to be at the top. Uh, we see, you know, immigration, the economy uh, coming in in a, in a sort of tie for second. Uh, national security slash terrorism, uh, kind of reflecting the current uh, atmosphere around, you know, protests and, and things going on and the people who are protesting against the protesters, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, national debt and federal budget deficits, well, obviously, with all the money that's being spent to, you know, defend and protect against the coronavirus, um, our national debt is, is going to be uh, really kind of out there for the foreseeable future, at least for the next couple of decades. Um, so, you know, these are issues that will absolutely be, you know, woven into the fabric of the debates and discussions as we come up to Election Day. 
and you know our job as voters as educated informed voters is to make sure that we solidify and understand where we individually stand on these issues what's important to us and is our candidate or candidates and again federal state local are our candidates for office talking about these issues that are important to us and if they are not we need to strongly suggest to them that they need to we need to gain and gather their opinions as to what they think about the health care system you know if you're talking at the local level is our hospital system up to the task and, and again you know we're going to see another spike in coronavirus in november uh you know is our hospital system up to the task of meeting that demand uh, you know, is, are our infrastructure projects, our roads, highways, buildings, are they, you know, sound and are they taken care of? What does the economy look like where you are? You know, as we said at the top of the show, the states are reopening. The economy is starting to slowly start to roll along again. However, you know, we are in a process that is going to take a while. It took us three years to recoup the losses that we saw in in the 2008 uh, Great Recession. You know, it took three years for that to be made up. And, you know, we're hearing, you know, politicians at the national level talking about this thing called a V-shaped recovery. That is, the recovery dropped quickly and, you know, some economists or, or some government officials uh, are saying that the economy is going to recover just as quickly. Well, his, history doesn't necessarily stand up with that concept. So, you know, something that we are going to have to uh, make sure that we are paying attention to, that we are looking at our news sources, that we are getting the information and background that we need so that we can have those educated discussions with our candidates for office, especially as we head into the home stretch toward November. So, you know, and, you know, that is our second important call to action for this show. Make sure that you're paying attention to what the issues that are important to you locally, that are important to you as far as your state, and that are important at the federal level, and make sure you're having that conversation with the relevant elected officials. So, you know, that, that's going to that's gonna do it for this edition. Uh, we are coming up on the end of our hour. Uh, again, um, you know, let's make sure that we are paying attention to what's going on. Uh, let's make sure that you know, we are staying engaged with the current events. Um, you know, let, let's talk to our elected officials about the situation with law enforcement. You know, we, we have some situations where a few police officers are giving the entire police industry a black eye. And, um, you know, we need to make sure that we're having that intelligent conversation. So that's going to do it for this week. I want to thank you, as always, for listening. This is Steve. You're listening to Fired Up, the political show right here on WJMSRadio.com. Everybody, please stay safe. Make sure you're protecting yourselves while you're out in public. And, you know, mask up, glove up, you know, wash your hands. Let's do all of these things. Let's help keep this coronavirus as close to under control as we can. I look forward to seeing and, and, and talking with you all again. If you have questions or comments, send an email to the, uh, the radio show's uh, email address, which is firedupradio at yahoo.com. I will put some information out on my Twitter feed, which is at areyoufiredup. And you can always check the Facebook page at facebook.com slash firedupradio for more information. Thank you all. Have a great week. Be safe, and I will talk to you again in seven days.
this message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're all